was clear to me there was a metabolic difference depending on where you were on the social scale. And piecing together work which others have carried out shows that in early life particularly, you can program brain activity and brain structure in ways that increase propensity to stress, increase propensity to um, mental health problems in early life, increase uh, propensity to um, inflammatory responses and so on, all of which added together increased risk of heart disease, cancer, etc. Harry Burns was a surgeon who gave up his career in that discipline to become a public health doctor. Eventually, that led to him being chief medical officer in Scotland, and now he's professor of global public health at the University of Strathclyde. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor at the BMJ, and I caught up with Harry between lectures to talk about Scotland. Scotland's always had a separate NHS, but since devolution, they've had much more autonomy about other ways in which the country should be run. Harry seems to have managed to convince them that improving health means improving the social determinants of health. In this conversation, we talk about that link, how his philosophy has affected policy up there, some of the experiments which are going on in the country, and what he thinks is the most exciting change. I was going to tell a story about what might have uh, led to that, that change yes. of the portfolio career. Yes. So could you, you tell us? Okay, well, I think what took me into surgery in the first place was people. I worked as a junior house officer in Sir Andrew Kay's unit in the Western Infirmary in Glasgow, and the people that he had attracted around him were amazingly interesting. People like Kenneth Kalman, for example, was a registrar there, and uh, various other individuals who went on to have uh, different careers. But I was attracted to go by some of the intellectual challenges around critical care, particularly. I was a surgeon for 15 years, a consultant for five years, and the five years I was a consultant, I worked in the Royal Infirmary in the, in the east end of Glasgow, which dealt with the most deprived populations in the UK at the time. And it became very clear to me that what the people in the east end did not need was more surgery. Mm. What they needed was more well-being, if you like, that you would get people coming in with recurrent alcoholic pancreatitis, for example. You would hold them back from the pearly gates and you would say to them, look, if you don't stop drinking, the next time you may well die. And the answer you would get would be, well, why should I care? Life is not good. Alcohol is the only pleasure I get in life, so I'm going to keep drinking. And it became clear to me that efforts to try and persuade people to adopt healthy habits were not taking note of the context within which they lived. And at that time, one of my very close friends was a guy called Sam Gobraith, who was a very, very able neurosurgeon who had given up surgery and become a a Labour Party member of Parliament. I remember sitting in his house up in the Highlands um, one New Year talking about this, and he said, why don't you go into politics? Mm. 
And I said to him, Sam, I'd rather have my eyes poked out, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. And he said, well, why don't you go into community medicine, as it was then? And I thought about it for about five minutes, and I thought, yeah, that's a good idea. And within a few months, I was a trainee in public health, headed off to do a master's in public health, and again, I met very interesting people. Mm. So I have been... I was attracted to public health by the intellectual challenge of trying to understand the drivers of health in deprived populations and how to fix it. Mm. Um, And, you know, I think, you know, 30 years on, I'm probably beginning to understand (laughs) that now. Um, You know, you've gone from incredibly acute critical care medicine surgery to to the the kind of the opposite end of the scale. And that must have changed the way you you look back on the career and the work you did before before that change. Um, How do you reflect on that? I'm not sure it is actually the opposite end of the scale. I mean, when you see the kind of things that would trigger failure in well-being, failure in, in many dimensions of life, they need to be tackled urgently. Um, I was at a lecture recently where the lecturer referred to type 2 diabetes as a medical emergency because there are things you can do to reverse type 2 diabetes and the sooner you start, the better it is. I think increasingly we're coming to understand that the drivers of failure in health as well as other dimensions of life need to be tackled urgently. And uh, it's not something that you can sit in your hands and meditate about, get out there and do stuff. So I'm seized with a need to make things happen. Um, A prominent politician once described my management style as proceed until apprehended. Mm -hmm. And I took that as a big compliment. Um, We've just got to start doing stuff. So you don't feel then that you're sort of as your career progresses, you're actually moving away from the medical bit of medicine? No, I think, you know, the paradigm, the medical paradigm that we've got just now is about the, the silver bullet, you know, the, the, you know, the discovery of insulin, the discovery of antibiotics, the discovery of vaccination and so on, have transformed health across the world. Um, but... We're still seeing huge health problems across the social spectrum in affluent countries. And doctors have a moral authority because of their vocation that allows them to stand up and say these things and allows people to become um, allies in the fight against health inequalities and inequality generally. It's more difficult when um, doctors have a financial interest. (laughs) So in private medicine, uh, you know, the American system, for example, there are, you know, I meet lots and lots of doctors who feel as strongly as I do about health inequalities. But, you know, it's difficult to get a mass movement going. But no, I think medicine... That, you know, there are no limits to medicine and no limits to what 
how doctors should be standing up for the poor and those who struggle to maintain well-being. Mm. Um, there's a quote I've often heard, um, to the extent I'm not sure who to attribute it to, but um, it's that politics is, is medicine kind of writ large. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If only that were true. You know, just as private practitioners have vested interests, so have politicians. I mean, it's, it's quite interesting. A lot of my work is about the neuroscience of uh, inequalities. And I wondered if the neuroscience um, impact of early life might explain why, given the same evidence, politicians from either end of the political spectrum interpret it completely differently. You know, why is that the case? I'm a scientist, I try to interpret it completely dispassionately, mm-hmm. but politici- But my experience of politicians interpreting the same facts differently tells me that their fundamental interest is in knocking the other side so that they themselves can acquire power. Yeah. So, and and that's not criticism of them. That's just politics. Nature of the beast. And I don't. And I think to say that politics is medicine at large is doing medicine a huge disservice. <laughs> well, I was going to say on that. I mean, it seems like uh, within the context of the UK, anyway, the the parliament that's closest to that would be Scotland. Um, there seems to be uh, a huge amount going on up there, and and. I don't know, there's a sense that they just seem to get the, 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 that link and, yeah. and the, the, the problem. I think, I think that's certainly true. There is a... I, I certainly detect a much greater interest in social justice in Scotland than I do down here. So the health inequalities down here, in political terms, are liable to be interpreted as a matter of choice because people believe in homo economicus, you know, the rational choice that people make. Um, And therefore, people who are drug addicts and alcoholics and so on have made a series of bad choices in their life when, in fact, the explanation is far more complex than that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think people up north are, and you know, Probably in Wales also, uh, where you've had the mining tradition and so on, similar to the tradition you've seen in parts of Scotland, understand what the context in which we live does to people mm. and how it makes them feel hopeless at times. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned this slightly, but um, you have looked at the, the kind of the physiological outcome of of early... Yeah, it it seemed to me very early on that I was a scientist and I wasn't going to become a politician and to argue for interventions that would narrow health inequalities needed a scientific background. We needed to understand what the science of all this was because one of my research interests, you know, I was a interested in critical care, so I was interested in sepsis and uh, nutritional support of patients and so on. And when I was a consultant, we measured things like protein turnover in sick people, we measured inflammatory markers and so on. And they were different 
as you went down the social scale. Mm. The inflammatory response was much more intense and protein breakdown was greater. So it was clear to me there was a metabolic difference depending on where you were on the social scale. And piecing together work which others have carried out shows that in early life particularly, you can program brain activity and brain structure in ways that increase propensity to stress, increase propensity to um, mental health problems in early life, increase uh, propensity to um, inflammatory responses and so on, all of which added together increase risk of heart disease, cancer, etc. So the, the biological evidence is absolutely cast iron, the mechanisms are understood, there are epigenetic mechanisms as well as brain development mechanisms and so on. And you just have to keep banging on about this to say, look, this is not something that people choose to do. I'm particularly interested in young offenders. You know, we demonstrated in studies in Glasgow that the lower down the social scale you were, key bits of the brain had a different structure and function Mm. as you went down the social scale, which made it difficult to suppress inappropriate behaviour, for example. So young men who get into fights and get sent to prison, that's not doing them any good. Mm. They need a more rehabilitative approach. And the evidence is growing from all sorts of places that if you produce a social intervention rather than a punitive intervention, these people become better citizens in the future, much more likely to get jobs, much more likely to pay taxes, much more likely to have stable families. So we still have Victorian attitudes, which the science tells us are wrong. I was going to say, I mean, your success as a chief medical officer in, in getting you know, people to think about the social determinants of, of wellness. And I just wonder, being able to say, look, there is this biological, metabolic, physiological, neurological reason for, for some of these things, and then, I don't know, that's subverting that kind of homo economicus point of view that politicians might have. Do you think that that helped? It, it certainly works in Scotland. When I have discussions with ministers in Scotland, they get it. They absolutely get it. Um, and then it goes into a political machine, the civil service and so on, where I the impression is that they sometimes struggle to turn it into action. Mm-hmm. Um, if they just let me loose, <laughs> I could, <laughs> I could uh, fix that for them. But... Um, Yeah, I mean, I think we're lucky in Scotland. We have an opportunity to do something really quite transformational. Mm. Yeah, and um, I mean, a lot is going up in, in Scotland. Um, what do you think, what do you feel like is the most interesting thing that's going on at the moment? There's sort of experiments around health or, or, or social care. Well, I mean, my first feeling is that more could be going on if, if the money was there, mm. you know, there is no question that um, health boards are hoovering up all the money in order to make their um, targets, you know, 
money goes into failure if you've got long waiting times, if your any departments choked with people, you get money thrown at that problem because it's politically very sensitive. Um, but if we I took a broader view of what was driving those problems, um, you know, part of you know, wh- why are any departments so busy? Well. There's two ways of thinking about it. They're busy because we're maybe slow in getting people out of any departments, but why are so many people coming into any departments in the first instance? Mm. Um, so I would be advocating for a much more systems approach to things. Look at the whole system rather than small segments of it. So I'm making that argument, and for me that's that's an interesting one. Um, think about, you know, the frequent attenders, you know, the... you know. I encounter people who attend A&E departments 40, 50 times a year. Mm. Um, what's going on there? You know, Why isn't someone just asking them what is going on? Because I bet you what's going on is not something that an A&E doctor can fix. Mm. It will be something in the social context. So more of that, I think, is needed, and I think there is an increasing interest in doing it. But I detect increasing interest in doing that in England as well. You know, the Vanguard programme down here is doing some very, very innovative stuff which Scotland can learn from. So it's it's not all or nothing. It's not Scotland, England is, you know. There are good things happening in England and Wales and in Northern Ireland that we ha- and, and across Europe. And it seems to me that the challenge is to scale things up. And probably the most transformational thing that's happened in Scotland over the past few years is the introduction of improvement science in our patient safety programme, which, which has been extended into mm. other areas, mm. early years collaborative and improving educational attainment and so on. It's giving people a real sense that they can make change happen. Mm. And the Institute of Healthcare Improvement in, uh, in the States, in most. we... Um, we run big conferences and things with, do hold Scotland up as being... Yeah. Well, of course, it's been run by Derek Feely, who used <laughs> to run the health department in Scotland. And, and Derek is, like me, a man who just wants to get on and do stuff. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, we, we, we are on the same page as IHI. Mm. Um, I wonder, you, know, you, you mentioned money, and people down here might... Uh, look up at Scotland slightly enviously because government spending is slightly higher per head up there. Do you think money is the kind of the thing that's really lubricating the system? It, well, in my experience, money is more often used as an excuse not to do things. Um, the thing that lubricates the system is passion. When frontline staff want to make things happen, it will happen. You can, they make change happen, often by ignoring the rules. You know, I, I've been very interested in an approach. Um, Scotland's largest housing association, the Wheatley Group, 75,000 socially rented homes. Everyone in that organisation is um, taught a programme called Think Yes. Mm. And it, that means if a member of the public comes to them asking for help, 
they take responsibility for making that happen. They don't palm them off. They don't tell them to go and visit some other department or go and visit the citizen's advice, go and fill out another form. They take personal responsibility for leading that person through the problem. And in doing so, they enhance that person's sense of self-efficacy and sense of control. And I've now come across many other places that, you know, if you think about successful third sector interventions, that's what they do. They make friends with the person who learns to trust them, who gets a sense of self-esteem out of that and begins to value their own sense of self-efficacy. Um, so why can't we do that in the public sector? And I go out and I talk to frontline staff. You know, I talk to health visitors in deprived areas and so on, and, they sit, and I tell them, just go and do things. If somebody needs something done, fix it for them. And they nod and they say, yeah, but these bosses get in the way. Mm. It was described to me recently, that phenomenon was described to me as the cold, dead eyes of the middle manager <laughs> who is there to control the system, who's there to make sure the system is safe and no one gets into trouble and no one overspends, especially not overspends. Well, actually... Often spending saves money in the long run. Um, you know, I've got lots and lots of examples of people whose needs were, you know, cheap compared to the costs to the system. One other thing that Scotland's doing, um, which is very different to the rest of the UK, is um, what you've written about for us in the BMJ about. Uh, a measure of GDP that doesn't just look at money, but includes well-being mm -hmm. factors as well. So can you tell us a little yeah. bit about that? So uh, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon uh, has a Council of Economic Advisors with a couple of Nobel Prize winning economists on it and one public health doctor, <laughs> among others. Um, and uh, I can't find any other country that has a public health doctor on their Council of Economic Advisors, which I think says something about the vision uh, that she's got um, and what I've become interested in is the concept of inclusive growth how do we get everyone to flourish through active participation in growing a sustainable economy and when you look at the incentives for growth the only incentive that's out there is GDP GDP um, emerged after the Second World War, uh, Bretton Woods, and everyone agreed that essentially what GDP measures is production and consumption. Um, and during the war, it was pulled together in order to measure production of weapons and consumption in terms of firing those weapons and expending them. Um, and it's remained more or less the same as consumption and production. So GDP goes up when people consume more, when they burn more petrol, when they eat more fast food, when they you know, do all of the things that we're trying to get them to stop doing. Um, and in terms of production, it doesn't take into account production that isn't paid for. So looking after disabled relatives, looking after children, doesn't count. Um, the informal economy doesn't count in effect building social cohesion doesn't count um, 
50 years ago, Robert Kennedy, uh, talking about GDP, said, yeah, GDP counts everything that's important except that which makes life worth living. There has been increasing interest across the world in alternatives to GDP. And, of course, there is resistance from the finance sector because the finance sector makes a lot of money on whether GDP is going up or going down or whatever, and they'd, you know they would have to stop being so lazy. They'd have to think about other ways of making money if we threw GDP in the bin, which we should do. So in Scotland, we've been trying to think about alternatives to GDP. Um, Sir John Sinclair, who produced the first statistical account of Scotland at the end of the 18th century and was apparently, I'm told, the first man ever to use the word statistics in the English language, He said that it would be good if the government of Scotland should uh, assess the quantum of happiness in the population. Now, I wouldn't go that far, (laughs) because it's quite difficult to measure happiness. You have to go out and ask people, how happy are you? But there are other ways of measuring well-being, for example, inequality, life expectancy, Measuring crime, measuring um, fail, failure, measuring educational attainment. So a flourishing economy is, economy is an economy where children are doing well at school, where there is little crime, where, there is, um, where health is improving and so on. And, if, and the other important point, of course, is the sustainability of all of this. It ta- GDP takes no account of the use of natural resources. So the faster you can burn carbon in order to persuade people to buy petrol and all this kind of thing, the better your GDP is. So if we want sustainable, flourishing populations, we have to factor those into alternative measures. And these are emerging. And, you know, some of the more commonly used ones, supported by the OECD and so on, put Scandinavian countries right at the top of the pile. Yeah. And it seems like Scotland and a lot of the things it's doing at the moment is, is mirroring Scandinavia yeah. much more than, than England. Yeah, when I speak in Scandinavian countries, I always tell them that it would be good to... Dig a ditch along Hadrian's Wall and have Scotland towed to somewhere off the 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 uh, off Jutland and Denmark or something like that because it does actually feel as if many of our attitudes are more Scandinavian than and of course a lot of our DNA is probably Scandinavian as well. There's a bit of solidarity there. There's been concern about levels of knife crime and things in London. Um, and uh, many people are looking to Scotland to see what's gone on there, in Glasgow especially, looking at um, trying to tackle it in a different way and trying to tackle it in the sort of holistic way that you're talking about health. Yeah. Um, did that come in when you were...? Yes, uh, I, it came in when I was Director of Public Health in Glasgow. One day I was sitting in my office, there was a knock on the door and this very imposing figure came in who was who introduced himself as Chief Superintendent John Carnahan, who had been head of the murder squad in Glasgow and had been asked to take on this violent reduction role. And what he said to me was his information specialist had been looking at violence in the city and I remember what he said verbatim um, 
What she's discovered is it's the same people who perpetrate violence, it's the same people who are victims of violence. It happens at the same place and the same time every week. I think that's a public health problem. What do you think? <laughs> and in response to that, I could only but agree. So we sat down and we started to look at things, and John learned a lot through observing what was going on in New York and these sort of places, and just went out and did stuff. You know, it, this was a classic example of someone going out and in light igniting a flame out in the community for people who wanted to do things to make a difference. And a tremendously charismatic personality, as was his, his uh, uh, colleague Karen, and the two of them made huge strides. And they did it by essentially building trust with the young people who were for whom violence and carrying weapons and so on was just a way of life. It was a way of validating themselves because life was really crap. They had no prospect of jobs. The environment they were living in wasn't great. Um, and fighting was a way of giving themselves a bit of purpose and meaning. And John talked them out of that. He could talk me into anything, but uh, he he did transform the community. And others learned, and other charismatic people joined the crusade, and it was scaled up. It was classic improvement science. Mm. So the discussions that I know he's been having, and I've been peripheral to with people down in London, I hope will bear fruit. I suspect the origins of knife crime down here are subtly different from what they were up, uh, you know, a bit more uh, complex. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's a public health issue. At the end of the day, failure in life isn't just about failure in health terms, it's about failure in terms of the way in which we interact with others, social cohesion, building respect for each other and building a sense of community will solve all of these problems. You know, you, you mentioned there a little bit about that, the people wanting to help and that kind of wanting to collaborate. And of course in Scotland, um, social care and healthcare is now funded out of the same part and, and there was never that purchase for purchase provider split within the healthcare system that that was in place in England. Um, so I was talking to Martin Marshall about Coif and, and the changes that are going on, and he mentioned the system up in Scotland, again, for, for it's going to be different to England, um, and up in Scotland is a much more kind of collaborative, peer-review model amongst GPs to, to do that. And the point that he left me with, which is stuck in my mind since, was that he just didn't think it could work down here. He didn't think that, I don't know, the whole framing of it, the mindset, he said it was kind of this Anglo-Saxon uh, view of the world, that it's much more competitive. Do you think that's... Well, um, I w obviously would bow to Martin's <laughs> better knowledge than me of English GPs. Um, I'm married to a Scottish one, and uh, so I've got a good insight, and I've got many GP friends. And the... 
So even before Quaff disappeared, there was a tradition of collaboration amongst GPs up there. There was a tradition typified by what's known as the deep end practices, the hundred practices that dealt with the most deprived populations across Scotland of sharing what works, sharing ideas and so on. And very often these would involve multidisciplinary working. The recognition that if someone was a frequent attender, frequently needed urgent appointments and so on, for reasons that weren't actually medical, Mm. that it made sense to have other specialties involved in the work of the practice. And I think that is slowly improving. I mean, there are some practices that have gone that way 100%, and they are hugely innovative and hugely supportive of uh, patients living difficult lives. But it's moving, um, and increasingly important. Part of the problem is that the integration of health and social care has caused some financial turbulence Mm -hmm. in as much as money has been taken out of health boards to give to the the integrated uh, working groups. And that's still to settle down, I think. That's caused some turbulence and a bit of uncertainty and so on. But GPs in Scotland... Of my ex- in my experience anyway, understand that context is important. I think GPs everywhere understand that. But, you know, they want to get involved in changing that context, I think, mm. particularly in the deprived parts of Glasgow, especially Glasgow, Dundee, the two areas that tend to have the most concentration of deprived uh, people. Mm. And, and we should say, of course, there is lots of interesting things going yeah, on all over. East End of London, for example, exactly. Tower Hamlets and all this kind of stuff, legendary mm. in the kind of work I do. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it's... it's um, And and um, in Wales, um, Julian Tudor Hart, classic example of just how a GP can make a real impact by paying attention to what's important to people. And going back to what you said at the beginning, having the sort of moral authority to actually yeah. grab that yeah. metal a little bit. Um, now, as a slight tangent, uh, I wanted to talk about universal basic yes. income. Um, and there are three areas in Scotland... which Four. Are, four areas in Scotland which are, are going to start experimenting with this. Um, I mean... In and of itself, that's interesting that, that that's going on. But the other part which I found surprising was the, the amount of cross-party support in the Scottish yeah. Parliament for it. Um, and you've written on, on it, and you, you're on record saying you think it's a good idea. Do you, yeah. you know, are you excited yeah. about yeah. it? Yeah, well, I mean, the argument I use is tax the rich, give the money to the poor, everyone wins, including the rich. Because the evidence is that if you support families who are struggling, usually with poverty. Um, You'll reduce the bad things that can happen in those families, like domestic violence. Domestic violence is a large predictor of educational failure um, in children. So if you support getting people out of poverty, the kids are more likely to do well at school. They're more likely to avoid offending behaviour. They don't get criminal records. Significant reductions in teenage pregnancy. Significant increases in 
um, employment, they will pay taxes at the end of the day. So on the one hand, those on the left of centre can feel good about it because it's an issue of social justice. Those on the right of the political spectrum can see it as making economic sense. And the evidence that comes from the studies that were done in the 70s in the US and Canada and seem to be happening in Scandinavia and so on just now is that you ultimately save a shed load of money because folk don't need so much health care, they don't need so much social care, they don't need so much incarceration, and they are become successful and innovative and grow the economy. Mm. That shed load of money that you'll save, you won't save it for a little while. Well, it's interesting. Stoke-on-Trent, a few years ago, did uh, an changed their approach to chaotic families. They used data to identify families living in chaos. They changed the way the public sector was working to support them. And they saved... They calculated how much time and costed how much time the public sector were spending on those chaotic families. And they dropped it hugely. Um... Huge reductions in time spent by social workers, reductions in costs of health care, reductions in criminal justice care. The only public sector agency that was spending more money was education because more children were going to school more often. So that that happened within a year, 18 months. Um, and there are various other studies uh, around homelessness, getting homeless people off the streets, costs fell within a year or 18 months. So, in the longer term, you will save a lot of money. I mean, adverse childhood experiences, the big adverse childhood experiences study done by Kaiser in beginning in the late 80s, they calculated that a year's worth of neglect in American children had a lifetime cost to the American economy of $124 billion. Now, given that you know children who experience neglect, serious neglect, a life expectancy is maybe, I don't know, 65 years, pro rata, I suppose, based on population sizes, a lifetime cost to the UK economy of about £30 billion. So that means children born 65 years ago will by now have cost the system £30 billion. Children born 64 years ago will be almost £60 billion, you know. So we ratchet up a burden on the economy through not supporting people in difficulty in the early years of family life. And... Children born into chaotic families, unless they are given a lot of support, will go on and have chaotic families themselves. It's an intergenerational cycle at work. So this is something that every politician can feel comfortable about. Do you feel confident about the prospects of it being rolled out more widely up in Scotland then? Well, if the project, I mean, at the moment, as I understand it, some money has been sent, set aside to allow planning for the project, not to allow right. it to go ahead. Um, if it goes ahead on the basis of what 
was happening in in Canada and the US, I see no reason why we shouldn't get the same results. And those results were better high school educa- high school graduation rates, reduced um, low birth weight babies, reduced offending behaviour, reduced health care costs and so on. I don't see why it should be any different. Okay. Within everything you're talking about, do you think the healthcare system is part of the problem? The fact that we have this, we've built up this huge money sink that yeah. pulls on the cash it- and- it's not the healthcare system that's the problem, it's the way it's managed. You know, in the sort of Thatcher-Blair years, we had the introduction of what is broadly termed new public management that is based on efficiency, it's based on protocols, it's based on uh, private sector discipline introduced to what is very much a public service. And it just doesn't work. I mean, I I have recently reviewed targets and indicators uh, in the use in Scotland, and what we're seeing is failure demand because things like four-hour waiting times and uh, 18-week treatment time targets and so on are what's counted. That's what counts. So money is thrown at them instead of being thrown at things that might prevent the need for attendances at A&E. So we need to be thinking much more of the healthcare system as an intact system for ensuring well-being rather than just getting people through a waiting time. And I put that in my report, but I did recognise the political sensitivities of suddenly turning around and saying, well, we're not going to measure waiting time targets anymore. That would be a bad signal the opposition politicians would make, hey, well, well, you're just going to stop measuring them because you can't make them. No, we should be doing the other thing and demonstrating that there are better ways to manage the service, manage it as a service that tries to keep people well rather than is focused entirely on fixing them when they say they're ill. Mm. And do you think Scotland's doing anything to change that? I hope so. There are things definitely happening through the Health and Social Care Integration Partnership that are kind kind of focusing attention more in the other direction. I would like to see that happen faster, and I think we can make it happen faster. But yeah, I I would like to think that five or ten years from now Scotland will be in a much better place and it's Social Progress Index, which will by then have uh, supplanted GDP, (laughs) will be up there with the Scandinavian countries. You've been listening to Harry Burns talk about Scotland. The editorial we mentioned, GDP and the Economics of Despair, is now available on bmj.com. That's all for this podcast. We'll be back next week talking about depression and cancer the sociological and neurobiological effects of the disease and treatment. We'll also be debating the evidence on e-cigarettes. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss out. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.